Hey, everybody, and welcome to Hope Peace Together. This is a show that gets real about mental health struggles and how to overcome them. Here you'll find personal stories, practical tools, and professional insight for the journey towards mental well-being, whether that's for yourself, a loved one, or the community around you. This is a place where hope is definitely alive. Welcome to the show with your host, Sherry Burkhardt. Before we get started with the show, I want to say thank you to Eating Recovery Center in the Woodlands for sponsoring this episode of Hope Peace Together. This is Sherry with the Hope Peace Together podcast, and we are so glad you're with us today. I'm here with Dr. Deborah Michelle, and she is the Regional Clinical Director for the Woodlands in Houston for Eating Recovery Center, and we're so excited to have her in to share with us about some different topics around eating disorders that we think are important for the community to be informed about. So welcome, Dr. Michelle. Thank you, Sherry. I'm very happy to be here this morning. So we connected, obviously, as we look for resources in the community for eating disorders. And Eating Recovery Center is a place where you can go for partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient for eating disorders. And then we also send people there for groups and family groups and things Mm -hmm. like that. Tell us, Dr. Michelle, how you got involved with treating eating disorders. I think you've said you've been, this is probably 25 years in this field. So I'd love to know a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's Yes, it's been a little over 25 years or 27, something like that. <laughs> so I became very interested in eating disorders, probably starting when I was in college and I was at Texas A&M University, mm-hmm. where I received my undergraduate degree. I had injured my ankle and I was in a, what they called at the time, rehabilitation class for your PE credit because I couldn't do the regular credit. And I remember seeing another student who walked in and I was shocked. I knew something was extraordinarily wrong with her. She was very, very underweight And it was stunning to me. I didn't know what was wrong at the time. I just remember it literally stunned me. And she was in that class with me for a bit. And I remember speaking with her just at times, nothing very, very personal or anything of that nature. Later, when I went on to graduate school in psychology, and I was always interested in working with women's issues, started learning about eating disorders and the different signs and symptoms, particularly of anorexia. I think at that point, people were familiar when Karen Carpenter died. Mm -hmm. Uh, That stood out for folks and some news stories that had covered that. And I remember beginning to wonder at that point in time, just from the things that I remembered, if this was what had been going on with this particular young woman. And I became very interested because at that time, we thought it was primarily more of a female-oriented issues, girls and women. We now know that certainly many boys and men are also affected. We do see more girls and women in treatment. So I became interested in the research aspect of it in graduate school and had a mentor who I worked with in research. 
And then the more that I was involved in research, I became very interested in actually doing clinical work and providing help for individuals that needed it, especially learning how challenging eating disorders treatment can be. They're known to be very complex disorders. And I know there's been discussion in the previous podcast about the complexity, the many factors that play into the development of an eating Mm -hmm. disorder. No single reason. We know there are biological factors, genetics, societal, individual personality characteristics, temperament, those kinds of things, immediate stressors. So I became very interested in the clinical aspect in addition to research and started in the field in 1992. So I have been involved since that period of time and really have dedicated my career to the identification and treatment of those with eating disorders. Yes, and you've really, with that time period, you've gotten to see a lot of changes in the eating disorder field, because I know that that was about the time that I embarked and went on my own journey into recovery, and things are a lot different now than they were then. Very, very different. I'm very happy to say that at this point, our treatments are much better Mm -hmm. than they were years and years ago through really the exchange between treatment and research and individuals that do both. We've learned much in the way of how different treatments affect the brain of those with eating disorders and how full weight restoration is really critical, full nutritional rebuilding is critical to heal the brain and Mm -hmm. so that individuals with whom we're working are able to utilize the treatments, the therapies that we're doing with them. Because when someone's brain is malnourished, it's not going to be able to utilize all of that information in the way that someone's brain who's healed and, and optimal in terms of health is going to be able to utilize that. So our treatments are much better in terms of our evidence based treatments that we use now that are shown to be effective. At at Eating Recovery Center, we are really steeped in a values-based approach, values, mindfulness. Uh, We use acceptance and commitment therapy as kind of the greater umbrella along with other evidence-based treatments such as dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, family-based treatment. Mm -hmm. We are very committed to helping family members of those who have an eating disorder, helping them in the recovery process process as well. We know certainly families are not to blame for these illnesses. And in fact, families can be our very greatest asset in recovery. And that's really what we're trying to do with the family education, family therapy. We do multifamily groups. For our younger patients, we have parent skills groups. I mean, certainly as parents, we don't get a manual for how to do it. (laughs) And when you throw something like an eating disorder into the mix, parents feel completely helpless. And many times they will tell me they feel like they're being held hostage mm-hmm. by the eating disorder. And it's not allowing them to parent and function in the family as they normally would if the eating disorder and the other co-occurring conditions such as depression and anxiety were not present. So it really disrupts, obviously, the life of the affected individual as well as the lives of the entire family member. It really has a tremendous ripple effect. So one of the things, going back to when you talked about the fact that the nutrition has to be 
more optimal for the patient to focus on therapy. And I did notice that that was a change that I saw because I was able to go to ERC in Denver, I guess, a few months ago. And the fact that you can start on a floor where you're more focused on the refeeding and and at that point, you don't have as many groups. And then yes. as that nutritional status improves, then you start going to more groups and things like that. And that was definitely different than what I experienced 30 years ago. Yes, yes. Many years ago, I think there was this general thought that, you know, change or wanting change had to happen from the inside out so Mm -hmm. that people had to want their recovery, had to be completely motivated and ready for it. And there was a lot of time spent sort of waiting for that to happen. And what we learned as more research was done, as we started developing better treatments, is that from a behavioral perspective, We've always known that change can occur from the outside then moving inward. You change your behaviors, thoughts, and feelings can obviously Mm -hmm. change along with that. So as we made progress in in looking at what treatments are effective and in looking at what happens biologically with folks when weight is restored or when their symptoms such as binging, purging, whatever their eating disorder symptoms may be, are corrected, is that we can also see changes that occur cognitively cognitively and emotionally that are a direct result of stopping or interrupting the cycle of symptoms, of Mm -hmm. eating disorder symptoms. And so in that process that we can simultaneously work on that, now certainly in an inpatient unit, the amount that folks would be able to do would be less. And we would expect that because we were able to work with patients at all levels of care. So partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, or both outpatient. I know that sounds confusing with the hospitalization term, but it is outpatient. (laughs) So, of course, individuals that come to work with us in our partial hospitalization program are typically going to be not as compromised medically and not as compromised nutritionally, still compromised and can be very ill, but not to the point where they need to be in the hospital. Or if they do, we're we're actually going to make sure they get there. So there still is a very significant focus and on the nutritional rehabilitation. So basically, I explain it as I look at the nutritional part of what we do with three meals, two snacks, maybe an evening snack at home, depending Mm -hmm. on what's recommended by the dietitian, as really the backbone of our program. So all of those things were set into place that happen at specific times throughout the day, and that all of the groups and therapies are built around that. Okay. So that we know early on when folks are coming into treatment with us, they're going to, at that point, we're not going to have them on passes. Typically, they're in the assessment stage. We really want to get that momentum going of establishing the healing process of their bodies and their brains through proper nutrition, interrupting those symptoms, uh, really being able then to start utilizing the skills that we're trying to teach, both through groups. And our groups are really focused on skill acquisition, so coping skills. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have our family therapy, our individual therapy, all the individual type sessions with the psychiatrist, the dietitian, the therapist, then are then very individualized for what that individual specifically needs as well. 
And inclusion of the family is a very key component of that. So I always have believed that it takes a village in the recovery of those with eating disorders. So anybody that's biological family or chosen family, Mm -hmm. their greater community, teachers, coaches, anybody really that we can leverage to support in recovery, I think is crucial. Craig Johnson, who is the founder, and he's actually, well, he was the founder of our child and adolescent program at Eating Recovery Center, and also is the director of our Family Institute for Eating Recovery Center years ago. And he, he's been in the field for many, many years, pioneer in the field. And he's a psychologist as well. He quoted at one of his talks that I went to, we live in a hostile recovery environment. (laughs) And I felt that was so true and so important for families to know in this process. I've used that quote ever since. That's a really good quote. (laughs) Because when someone is in treatment with us for 10 hours a day, the focus is recovery, recovery, recovery. The minute they walk out the door, it changes. Or if they get on their phone, which we try to really limit. I mean, social media that's something else if, if we have time to talk about. It's changed everything. Yes, we and Dr. Brown and I talked quite a bit about that yesterday, just how that impacts things. Sometimes it can have a positive, in a, yes. but it just brings a lot of challenges it that does. weren't there before. It does. So not only when someone walks out of our door, are they immersed in this hostile recovery environment in terms of the immediate environment? You know, people are going to be talking about diets. They're going to see people, you know, not having lunch or whatever the Mm -hmm. case may be, and the focus on appearance and perfectionistic bodies and faces and all kinds of things. And then, of course, with social media, you have access to that 24-7 right? in a way that was never, ever present. We used to talk about, okay, let's stop your subscription to Vogue magazine. (laughs) And so now we we actually do social media groups for this Mm -hmm. purpose because it can have a very negative impact. So what we try to do then is prepare individuals for those challenges when they're with us and when they're out of our care and really try to connect them to pro-recovery sites. And that's one of the reasons that ERC, Eating Recovery Center, really has a very substantial family portal as well as individual portal. We have an app that I think that you and Dr. Brown may have spoken about previously that is called Recovery recovery record. It's not our app. It was actually developed by Jenna Trethgarden and her colleagues, but she has devised a special version of that for Eating Recovery Center. And when we hand off folks from our care to their outpatient team, Mm -hmm. we actually offer that application to them free of charge for that patient. It's a way to stay connected to their therapist, to let their therapist and their dietitian, their entire team, know how they're doing in terms of thoughts and feelings, in terms of how they're eating or difficulties that they're having. So again, we really want people to, if they're going to be socially connected, which we know many are, majority, we want them to be pro-recovery websites because we know there are plenty of pro-eating disorder websites out there, unfortunately. Well, and even having those in your feeds, like I know that some of the recovery advocates, you know, I follow them like Shannon Kopp or different things like that. And having that interspersed in the normal everyday thing helps because it's just a reminder and a mindset of, okay, 
that, you know, I need to see those things. Mm -hmm. Even still, all these years later, it's just helpful because the other can be so overpowering when people are posting pictures of their workouts and their this and their their watch and their calories burn. I mean, those are the kinds of things you're being bombarded with and that makes it really hard. So then having the recovery interspersed in that helps tone some of that down. Yes, yes. And I think that you're mentioning just these posts that individuals will post. Yes. And it really portrays such a fantasy idyllic life that is completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. A perfection, everything is wonderful, no problems. And unfortunately, I think there is a generation that is growing up believing that that is a normal life. And it does not prepare them for the fact that no, that's not the way that life is day in and day out. And that we're unprepared in ways that we haven't been prepared in the past to learn how to deal with difficulty. There are so many pressures on you know all of our generations at this point in terms of excelling in numerous areas of life and i do think that this unrealistic portrayal of all the accolades and awards and you know wonderful mm-hmm. vacations etc that people will put online again just perpetuate this idea of what life is when it's very unrealistic. And and of course, life does have wonderful moments like that. I don't mean to sound like it doesn't, but in terms of then the other side of life and being able to model and see people who are dealing with difficult things. And that is natural and that is normal. And it is a way that we learn by being able to do that. So what we're seeing is that we're having to really dispel many of these myths with the younger individuals with whom we work Mm -hmm. that it is normal to have some feelings of anxiety. It is normal to be worried about things at times. It's normal to feel down about some things at times. And of course, it's the window of what would be normally expected given the circumstances and the ability to negotiate oneself through that. I know when we were just chatting a few minutes ago, and and one of the things we touched on briefly before we actually started the podcast was trauma. And I speak with families a good bit about that certainly trauma we know is a risk factor, a nonspecific risk factor for any type of psychological difficulty, which makes sense. When I speak with families about it, when I mention the word trauma, oftentimes you can see the look on the family members' faces. Oh my goodness, what has happened to my loved one? And I think most people still today will think of trauma as things such as abuse, neglect, war, and certainly those are all very traumatic events. What we also know from more recent research is there's something called complex relational trauma mm-hmm. in which relationships and how we negotiate or how we're affected by relationships can also be traumatic for us. And if we look at what is the definition of trauma, it's really circumstances that we feel 
we are unable to cope with. We are overwhelmed and it overwhelms our ability to cope. And anything that does that in our minds can be considered traumatic. So with many of the individuals with whom we work, we see this constellation of complex relational trauma. So for instance, it could be, I've had a best friend all the way through elementary school, Mm -hmm. middle school. We go to high school, you know, and he or she turns their back on me. They've unfriended me. They're not coming, you know, they're going to go hang out with the cool people. I'm not cool. And so for many of us, we may think, well, that's not a super uncommon experience. You've got to pull yourself up. You'll get over it. Well-meaning loved ones will say, well, you'll find another best friend, etc." For individuals with whom we work, often their temperaments are such that for them, it may be a very, very different experience, and it may be very traumatic for them, and they may be overwhelmed by that. So those are the kinds of things we very often find ourselves trying to help individuals and their families learn how to negotiate their way through, learn how to communicate those kinds of things. And again, in this society where you have this idea like every life, it can be very difficult then to understand kind of how and why these things may happen. And then what do I do about it? So those are things that we're really trying to help individuals with in treatment. So this hits home because I've been walking through something like that recently with my daughter. And I will say that when I spoke to some parents, I talked about the fact that this is a trauma (laughs) and that, you know, it can have big impact on people. And that way, you know, I think a lot of people don't speak this language in everyday life. So they were kind of taken aback that I would, you know, say that it would have such implications. But we talked about speaking about prevention. So in, in these kinds of instances, when we know that our kids are going through something like that and now have heard, okay, this is a trauma, what's a way to help them navigate that in the realm of preventing something ending up in an eating disorder or another issue because they weren't able to cope with that? Yes, yes. I think many times well-meaning family members will focus on, will become very solution-focused in in trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. Understandably, it's hard to see your child or another loved one hurting. And we can see all those wonderful qualities that they have. And and oftentimes, and I think at times it may feel just instinctual to to say, you have so many good qualities (laughs) there, you're going to find another best friend or whatever the case may be. And what happens when we do that is inadvertently, we are not validating, we're not recognizing the pain of the moment. And the power of validation is actually significant for individuals. And I think it's really been underestimated many times in the past. I think family members often, and again, I I love the way that you said lots of folks don't speak this kind of language (laughs) in terms of psychological speak or that counseling talk, that sort of thing. However, validation, people often confuse that term with I am condoning something or I'm agreeing to it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if I see my child hurting and, you know, a best friend has turned her back on him or something of that sort. And I say, you know, honey, don't worry. There's no need to feel badly. You're going to find somebody else. 
that is really not validating my child's pain in the moment. So if you can sit with your child in that pain of the moment, acknowledge that it feels painful, it is hard. Now, what can be hard for parents about that or other loved ones is that in order to do that, it's painful. Mm-hmm. You, have yes. to, you have to be present in that moment with that individual. You are connecting through pain. That's hard to do that. It's hard to see your loved one in distress like that. And we want to make it better. Right. It taps into that powerlessness feeling as a parent. Yes. However, the connection and the bonding that can occur through that validation is powerful, Mm -hmm. very powerful. And then you've connected with your loved one in that emotional place and just being there. Sometimes we don't have to say anything but just being there to hold their hand, give them a hug, whatever works for them and what they need in that moment. Do you need time? Do you need to talk? And asking, you know, what do you need right now? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just sitting there in that pain in that moment. And then that leads later to being able to have a discussion about how to handle actually the content of whatever Mm -hmm. occurred, and then being able to help them be able to acknowledge their own emotionality and that it is okay to feel that and it is okay to acknowledge it and that it's not the same thing as saying what that person did was okay, but it is okay to say, yes, that really hurt. And to then talk about what, for example, you know, this is where it becomes a learning opportunity for a family to talk about their values and the place in which they come from, and and parents can really have the opportunity to model a way to talk things through and to be able to do that. So I think that given all of the pressures of our society and the fact that family life has changed so dramatically, and what I mean by family life has changed so dramatically is that The latest data shows that very few families now, a very low percentage, will sit down and have dinner or a meal together, Mm -hmm. not only on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis. I think so many family members are overscheduled with extra, certainly the kiddos with not only homework, but extracurricular activities, adults pursuing careers, that really the time in which families spent years ago bonding at the table over a meal and talking about what was going on in their lives and what was happening has really diminished. And in a world of texting and less direct communication, we're seeing a generation of individuals who do not know how to directly communicate with people face to face Mm -hmm. and that that is something that we have to target. So back to this powerful connection that can be made in these moments, it really becomes a learning opportunity, a teachable moment for parents to be able to teach children how they can acknowledge their feelings and how it is good to do that and to be able to talk about their emotions and let those feelings out and find support and connection through other people and relationships, not through looking at a screen, whether it's at a computer or a phone, but to feel the connection of another 
another human being in a way that you can't do online. And social media and online can be a form of connection, but it does not take the place of human connection and really connecting with another person, particularly with whom you're bonded. So being able to validate feelings of family members is very, very important and significant and really goes a long way in relationship repair. And certainly in any family, you bring any group of people together and there will be conflict, (laughs) there will be disagreement. So it's not that difficult to have a good relationship if everything is going super well. The test, though, is when there's conflict or disagreement. That is when it really, the ability to be able to negotiate your way through the conflict or disagreement and the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts associated with that That is the real test then. And so we all learn to do that through our families of origin, or we either learn to do it or Or not do it it, or avoid it. Yes, yes. (laughs) So really being able to start with validation, and, and that's something that we're really focusing on right now in providing advanced caregiver skills to family members Mm -hmm. of the patients that, uh, with whom we're working. Because we know that particularly when you're dealing with these mental health conditions within the family, the whole family dynamic has been changed. And so that if we can start working on those connections, it can have a significant impact early on. And so when we started talking about this particular topic, we were starting about talking about prevention. And I think that one of the things that you brought up, too, in that that I I wanted to highlight was about the eating together. And I don't know if you know off the top of your head what the statistic is, but that is a big predictive factor in eating disorders, correct? There's some studies out there that talks about sitting down, not just in eating disorders, but I believe even in addictions, about the fact that having those family meals... Are actually a preventative measure. And actually very helpful and beneficial to children Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to connect with their family, of being able to have that time and building of Mm self-esteem through that family connection time. And the latest statistic that I heard, I'm sure it depends on which study or survey that you hear, but it was down to 30% of families are having family meals together. I know our dietitians are very much encouraging families, certainly with everyone in our treatment, we encourage them to do that, to have family meals together. We arrange that Mm -hmm. so that we can establish that connection and support in doing that. And when we look at, again, aspects that can be protective to individuals from eating disorders, we know that the more the ability that they are able to build their self-esteem, to be connected to their values and their families and their friends and being able to have support. Those are things that can be very, very helpful in the process in building self-esteem. So much in the same way that non-connection and isolation can also be contributing factors to development of all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. We know that having a good support system with whom someone can work out their issues, their difficulties. We see eating disorders develop in the earlier years, typically the developmental years. And of course, that's a time of tremendous change, physical change, emotional, cognitive Mm -hmm. change, dramatic change. And then you put all of these societal pressures on top of that or kind of the over 
overlay for that. So it, it really can be through a society that's obsessed with appearance and weight and body shape, etc. It really can be a way to feel very accomplished and powerful and like I'm in charge of my life right, right. now. Not that consciously someone is thinking that, but they fall into that pattern. It helps them feel good at the moment. And those behaviors are thought to then change the brain of someone who is vulnerable to an eating disorder in such a manner that then it really develops from there and really takes off from there when all of these factors collide at the right time of life, the right season of life. So learning how to negotiate difficulty is an important part of what families can be doing in terms of helping their children stay connected to them, work on how to not only just problem solve and negotiate conflict, but also really recognizing the emotional piece of it as well. So that's there's just so much good information in there. But I think one thing that you just said touched on something that I often share when I tell my story about my experience with my eating disorder. And that is that so often, even for me, you become fixated on numbers, but it's really not about the numbers. And what I talk about is the fact that my insides felt so disordered with all those different emotions and overlays and things that you're talking about, that the eating disorder was a way to gain a sense of control. And when I look back, really, that was so much more than about the actual weight. It was about gaining a sense of what I thought was order in in a dysfunctional way. But Right, right. When I explain to folks when I'm out doing education and outreach, when I explain that eating disorders are not genuinely about food and weight, Mm -hmm. often people will look at me as if, what? What are you talking about? Of course it's about food and weight. And this is exactly what I explain, is that what happens is that All of the internal emotional turmoil, the uncertainties, insecurities that, you know, all of us will have some form of that in our lives. And we learn to negotiate our way through that, ideally. So what happens, though, with someone who develops an eating disorder is that the way to feel better in the moment is through what they're doing to control their weight or to lose weight or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes the way in the moment to feel better. And then again, those behaviors are thought to actually change the brain of what's happening. And so this is part of the complexity of eating disorders and the challenge is that in that moment, an individual can logically know that I can realize that this is not the way to fix whatever problem I'm having. Mm -hmm. Yet, I want to feel better. I don't want to feel anxious. And if I do this behavior, whichever, you know, whatever that is, I will feel better right now. And we don't like to feel anxious. And so if it's avoiding food or whatever it may be, you know, I say that avoidance is anxiety's best friend. (laughs) And so we will all try to do things to not feel anxious. And so then what happens is that that gets rewarded in terms of you know, whatever I just did or didn't do got rid of that bad feeling. So I'm going to do more of that because that felt really good. And so in part, it gets negatively reinforced, those behaviors then. So we are actually in treatment then really working very intensely multiple times through the day to help individuals break that cycle. Mm -hmm. And it can be very strong and very intense 
And sometimes I will hear family members mistakenly believe their loved one should be feeling comfortable in treatment. Mm-hmm. And I've had family members say, well, I you know, don't want my loved one to feel anxious or uncomfortable there. And certainly it's not that we intend to intentionally want people to feel badly <laughs> by any means. We do know, however, that they need to learn how to be able to tolerate and regulate those uncomfortable emotions because that's a key component in recovery is being able to regulate emotions, being able to feel anxious about something and be able to do it, be able to do the things. So we talk about that very frequently, that you can acknowledge that you feel anxious about doing something and you can do that behavior anyway. You can be anxious about having lunch or having lunch out on the outing today and you can still do it because that's what we have to learn to do in life. I think that's such great information for families because we hear that as well of someone who, you know, goes into a program and then they're, especially in the instance of a child, the child teen isn't happy and they're not going to be happy out in life either. Just like what we're talking about, about how they have to navigate these social situations and all those different things. So if treatment was all hunky-dory, yes, <laughs> then, yes. then that wouldn't be reality as far as, you know, what they're, it's going to be like when they get out. So right. I'm glad that you mentioned that. One of the other things that you touched on that I know we were going to talk about was the fact that anxiety and other diagnosed disorders, you know, depression, things like that often go hand in hand with an eating disorder. So can you maybe give a little bit more information about what you see in that area? Absolutely. I know sometimes family members and and patients that come to our treatment program will say things such as, well, I know you treat eating disorders. Do you treat the depression? Do you Mm -hmm. treat the anxiety or do you treat OCD? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, absolutely. I have honestly never met anyone in my career with an eating disorder who did not have significant anxiety mm-hmm. and frequently symptoms of depression in some form as well. So it's also not unusual for us to see someone who initially comes into treatment and perhaps we're not seeing the anxiety and the depression as prominently or some of these other features as prominently until they actually become engaged in treatment. So after they've become engaged in treatment, they're not able to engage in their eating disorder behavior. So what then can happen is it sort of opens the door for those emotions to start coming out to be visible. Right. So at times it can feel to the person that's in treatment with us and to family members that, oh my goodness, you know, what's happening? Things are getting worse. And it's not actually that the person's getting worse. It's that the things that have been there, that the eating disorder has really held at bay, are now visible and are being heard, being seen. So much of our treatment is targeted at how to deal with all of those emotions. So we have very specific coping skills groups that are based on anxiety management. We do a lot of what we call exposure and response prevention. So having exposure to things, for example, that provoke anxiety without avoiding it. So when I Mm -hmm. earlier when I was saying really teaching individuals that you can be anxious about something and you can still do it. So I may have been anxious about coming here to the podcast and and being recorded (laughs) with you and I could still do it. 
even though I was anxious about it. So it's learning that we can do those types of things. So we do a lot of exposure and response prevention. We do a lot of mood management in general. We do have specific protocols for individuals that may have obsessive compulsive disorders or features of that. If an individual struggles with substance abuse, we certainly partner with programs in the community to be able to help them with those issues as well. So really, we're we're able to handle all of those other diagnoses as well. And it's really an important part of the entire eating disorder treatment that we provide. Well, because often I think one of the points you made as far as substance abuse too is that um, one of the things they addressed when I went to treatment was the fact that when you're getting in recovery for one thing, that's a you know often a time where you can then partner with something else to stuff those feelings. So switch yes. addictions. Yes. And so because of that, even though I was 15, I chose to get sober too because I was already having problems and difficulties with that, but not as prevalent as my eating disorder. But I did not want to switch addictions and then right. go down a whole nother road. Mm-hmm. So I think that education is important because, you know, I do see that a lot of times when someone gets in recovery for something else, but then they switch directions. Yes. We see that with substance abuse. We see that with Mm self-harm behaviors. So we're equipped to deal with that as well. I know self-harm is an area that's very distressing for families as well as affected individuals. So We're going to talk about recovery and just want to share the hope in that because I think it's hard when you have an eating disorder or really, I mean, any kind of addiction, anxiety, depression, all those different things to even think about what life would look like without that and how there's a possibility to move on. I'd love to hear just your thoughts about what your hopes are or eating recovery center just in general, when you're looking at eating recovery, what that would be for a person. Absolutely. Well, the main take-home message that I really want everyone to hear is that recovery and full recovery is absolutely possible. And I do not want anyone to ever give up hope on that. Our stance is that everyone has an opportunity for full recovery. Mm-hmm. And it's a myth. That I, I've heard people many times over the years say, well, I've heard once you have an eating disorder, you always have an eating disorder. You never get over it. You always have some aspect of it. I know many individuals that are fully recovered. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there is a subset of individuals who are not. As I mentioned, over time, our treatments have become much better. And so I think what we're seeing, we're seeing better recovery rates. I mean, we do know that still these are very challenging disorders. There is risk of relapse. What I do want individuals to know is that comprehensive treatment, so early identification, having an assessment early on in the process, if there's any suspicion, and and perhaps we can talk about Mm -hmm. that in a moment, is very important to get proper comprehensive treatment, not delaying that. Being able to work with the treatment team on recommendations, and, and there's a reason that it's very intensive treatment with many treatment team members that have a role. You've got different physicians, so you've got your psychiatrist, you have your general internal medicine physician, you have therapists, you have dietitians, so many people involved. And and that is because they're complex disorders. So with recovery, certainly there's the group where 
full recovery. We have those that are significantly improved, if not fully recovered. So what that means is that they're able to function well. Perhaps they may still be in treatment at times, but overall, they're significantly improved. They are not significantly impaired by their disorder. And certainly there is a subset that remain chronically ill. But again, our treatments are better than they have been before. The medications that we use now to treat depression and anxiety are much better than they were before. And it's never too late. I'm thinking of an individual that I worked with many years ago who had been ill for a very long time. This was an adult who was in her 30s at this point, very, very bright individual. And she had been in treatment and been hospitalized many, many times. And then one of her hospitalizations back with us, something clicked for her. It was different this time. And we saw her make significant improvements that she had never made before in her lifetime. And that was another example of of don't give up. I'm thinking of another person I met when she was a teenager and she was very ill. I worked with her for about five years and she was hospitalized several times and remained in treatment with me. Got to the point where she actually graduated and went on to graduate school, mm-hmm. fully recovered at that point, married, is in a, prof- a helping profession now. And up until probably a couple of years ago, I would still hear from her family and has children doing quite well. So I want to give that message of hope. And that if you or your loved one, whoever may be listening to this, if you're having difficulties now, whether it's the first time, whether you've been through treatment before, please reach out again. It's so very, very important. What we see is that treatment for an eating disorder is typically more of a journey. It tends to be a bit of a longer journey or might compare it to a marathon as (laughs) opposed to a sprint. We do know that individuals, when they come into treatment at different points in time, can progress. It doesn't mean they're back at square one. They can progress their treatment each time they need to come back in. If we think again about needing to be able to heal the body and heal the brain to be able to utilize the skills, if someone has gotten, if they've relapsed back into the throes of their eating disorder, we first need to heal the brain, the body again in a manner that they can utilize the skills that they've learned before and that they can also take a look at what happened. Where did I kind of of derail here. And what can I do about that? So what can we learn about what just occurred and go from there? So that's always how we're really trying to think of it. So we want individuals to connect with what's important to them, what's meaningful in their lives. And my own personal experience over the years, really where I began to see individuals turn a corner is when they start to really live their life according to what's meaningful and what they value and what has purpose and meaning for them, when they start to do that and they start to feel that, Mm -hmm. that begins a process of where it's, this is more powerful than the lure of the eating disorder. So if we can get folks to that point where they can begin to turn that corner and continue moving in that direction and keep that momentum going, I think that's where we start to see really significant improvement in how individuals are doing. 
I see that in your recovery advocates. That's something that they talk a lot about. And we mentioned that yesterday when we talked about Shannon Cop being really involved with animals. And yes. then that, that's something that has meaning to her. And so that's really been a key part of her recovery. And I know for me, that's been true as well, mm-hmm. being able to find joy in those things again, because you really lose that when the eating disorder takes over. Yes. You, you lose those things that have joy and meaning because it takes so much energy to do the other. And so I can see how that helps um, shift that mindset once you do have all the nutrition and all those things. One of the things that we didn't touch on that I don't want to leave out is if someone has a family member that isn't, you know, maybe ready to get help, Mm -hmm. but they see them at a point where medically they're really struggling. I know we send a lot of people your way that are in that position. What are some thoughts you have for those family members? That can be a very difficult problem for family members. And over the years, I've consulted with many families about that Mm -hmm. very concern where particularly, of course, it's different if the person is a minor right, and that parents at that point have the ability to take charge. It can be very difficult once the person becomes a legal adult. One of the first things that I will mention is that particularly if this is a young adult, there are very few young adults, or at least when families have called me, that I've been consulted on that are truly 100% financially independent at at a young age. What I tell families is that it's critical at this point that you leverage any of that ability that you have to get that person in for an evaluation. And many times family members are afraid that if I do that, I'm going to disrupt this relationship or rupture this relationship with my loved one. I do understand that concern. At the same time, it could be the difference between life or death. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorders. My mantra is you're fine until you're not. People can think they're fine. They can go to the doctor, you know, two weeks ago, but something in their body changes today and it can make a dramatic difference depending on what they're doing. So it is critical that family members be able to leverage whatever abilities that they have to be able to say, for instance, if the family is helping to pay for college or paying for college or whatever the case may be, is to be able to say, in order for us to continue to support you, this is a health care issue. So this isn't an ultimatum. I encourage families to find a time to talk and in a very caring, loving, compassionate way, be able to express their concerns, their worries, Be prepared for denial, be prepared for anger, be prepared for minimization, and Mm -hmm. continue moving forward with that. If there's a private school involved, they can become involved. Public school is a little bit different, but schools want their students to be healthy. They do not want to risk a student with an eating disorder on their campus having an adverse medical event there in a dorm or or whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So certainly being able to leverage, if if there's a family physician that has known this person for any period of time, getting that person involved, really looking to that village, who are the significant individuals in that person's life that you can rally to bring them in 
to be able, again, in a compassionate, caring way, really help them get treatment. At the very least, have an assessment with someone who's knowledgeable in eating disorders. This is one of the reasons we offer complimentary assessments, because when you have convinced your loved one to do this, you don't want to wait. Right. You don't want to wait till insurance <laughs> has been approved. You, It's got to be done when the time is there, when the opportunity is there. So we want that done as soon as possible and to be able, and we also offer outpatient consultations with our physician because not all physicians have expertise in eating disorders and what it does to the body. So Dr. Moore, who is our pediatrician and sees adults as well, she offers outpatient consultations uh, for individuals where someone may say, I've been absolutely fine, there's no need to worry, and we can also then have that person evaluated medically to be able to make sure. And we hope there isn't something wrong medically. We don't want to wait until the damage has been done. We want that person to get treatment before them. We don't want to wait till something bad happens. Right. Because it can be that, and we talked about, Dr. Brown and I talked about this on our podcast, was the fact that eating disorders aren't always visible. So you may think that some, you know, someone's in recovery, but if they're starting to do things, a lot of times it may mess with electrolytes or in things that would then impact the heart. And those aren't always visible from the outside. So the person may look like they're a healthy weight, but if they're engaging in those behaviors, it could really cause a, a lethal situation. Yes. And we're seeing many individuals, particularly younger teenagers, who have started out at higher body weights and are losing dramatic amounts of weights, 50, 75 pounds, even 100 pounds. Mm. Children, teenagers who are coming in. So if again, you can't tell by looking at someone. Right. I know I gave that example of the person I saw in college, and that's what most people think of, but that's one of the myths that you can tell by looking. It's not true. So we're seeing these individuals that have lost these dramatic amounts of weight, and they are very, very medically ill, very medically ill. And we're seeing a significant increase in this type of presentation. So to look at them, you would have no idea they are as medically and psychologically ill as they truly are. So it's imperative to get those evaluations done quickly and to get them done and really pull out all the stops, do whatever it takes, bring in anybody and everybody that you can that's meaningful in the person's life to make sure that that happens. I am always happy to speak with families about this topic in their particular situation. So if anyone, I know Dr. Brown is as well, Mm -hmm. and if anyone ever wants to reach out to either of us, we're happy to speak with them about that. And there also, we did another podcast with two interventionists, and I know that um, they use a method called ARISE, but that's also an option is, you know, having someone come alongside the family, you know, for that whole process and walk with them. And I think that that is helpful in eating disorders because it does help bring in the friends and, you know, helps gather that because the family may be feeling really overwhelmed trying to do all that on their own. So there is help available in that way too. And so for any parent out there that is struggling with this, I certainly wouldn't have asked to go to treatment. I wasn't going to offer that up. But when given, I knew that there was some condition 
conditions based on the nurse and counselor I were seeing that if I crossed a certain point, then that would be the case. And so I purposely crossed that point because I knew I couldn't handle it anymore, but I, I wasn't going to ask we right. put me in treatment. And I think that is hard sometimes for that person. So if you're the family members waiting for the person to ask, that may not come, but they right. still may inside be wanting and crying out for someone yes. to say, okay, this is enough. Let me, you know, let me help you. So, yes. And it's not unusual that we will see that individuals that were very reluctant, if not outright very angry about going mm-hmm. to treatment when they're on the other side of it are actually thanking the providers. And we also have evidence in our inpatient units that even those that are committed to treatment, adults that have been committed to treatment, can do as well as someone who goes in voluntarily once they're able to remain there long enough and, again, be able to nourish their body, their brain to a point in which they're able to think much more clearly again and really not be hijacked by the eating disorder the way that that it does. So I think that we've talked about hope for the individual, but this is also hope for the family in the sense of what may seem impossible. There are many, many stories of families getting involved in that person getting treatment and then the person coming back and saying thank you. And it can be hard as a parent to make those decisions, but definitely life-saving in these instances. Absolutely. So as we wrap up today, is there anything else that you think that someone listening today might need to hear or another story of hope that you might want to share before we close? For those listening, I would like to direct you to the Mm -hmm. Eating Recovery website where we do have stories of hope. We have information for individuals. We have information for families as well. And to please look for, we do community events when we do alumni events. We're very active in the community here in both Woodlands and and Houston as well. So we do alumni community events. And on our website, you can also see a listing of any upcoming events that we have. And we also have a group called Houston Eating Disorder Specialist Mm -hmm. with whom I'm the current past president and we do community events as well. So please look to our website, eatingrecovery.com, and you will see a listing of things that we have available as well as resources. And there's also, again, a toll-free number for assessment that's there. So I know people will often be on their computers in the evening sort of after typical business hours. And so there's always someone there to be able to pick up the message and be able to get back to someone who has worries or concerns. Or again, please feel free to reach out to me. And we just want individuals to know that recovery is possible and taking the first step of reaching out is really critical to do that. And Dr. Michelle didn't mention, but they also do events in College Station as well, because I know that we have College Station that we connect to resources and ERC does do events on campus there as well. So we do. Yes. yes. I have an Aggie, so I just want to mention that. As do I, and I am. (laughs) So thank you so much, Dr. Michelle. This has been just such great information, even for someone who may not be struggling with an eating disorder, but definitely preventative tips for parents and families that I think are very helpful to know. So thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Y'all have a great day. Thank you again to Eating Recovery Center for sponsoring today's episode of Hope Peace Together. We appreciate the sponsorships making it possible to share hope and light with our community. 